Hello, and welcome to the Unapologetically Imperfect Podcast. Hi, this is Claire. And this is Keon. And this podcast is for all those mamas out there. Whether you're a working mom, a work-from-home mom, a stay-at-home mom, a single mom, a married mom, all moms. Because sometimes being a mom is the absolute best. And sometimes, girl, it's the absolute worst. This is your midweek mama moment to get you over the hump. We're going to start with a little mama dance party right now. Take a moment just for you to dance like nobody's watching. Remember how good it feels to move your body just for you. Go mamas. Go mamas. Go, go, go mamas. Prove it out. Hey, UI Mamas. So this week, we have switched things up a little bit. So we are foregoing our, our normal sorry, not sorry. Because we have the most amazing, amazing. guests. A beautiful conversation that will bless each and one, every one of you. Yes. So please listen. The episode is longer than our normal 30-minute second, but every single second is a tidbit that you need, Mamas. So please enjoy this episode. Enjoy, ladies. Hey, mamas, we got to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Hey, UI mamas, we are so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We have two amazing guests with us, two female physicians who are part of the podcast called Hey Doc, Let's Chat. Ladies, can you take a moment to introduce yourselves? Yes, wonderful. Ladies, thank you so much for having us on this show. So I am one of the co-founders. I'm Dr. Pindula Erica Choa. And I'm Dr. Karino Shtani. And Dr. Corinne Ange is an OBGYN and I'm an emergency medicine physician. And we are just so happy that you take the time to listen to our show. And we are just so happy and proud of what you ladies are doing. And thank you for having us on this show. We're so glad to have you. So ladies, we're just going to ask a few questions of you. And you know, mamas, we sometimes have to just take some time out to learn about our own health. I know we've been talking a lot about our kids, but you know what? If we don't take care of our bodies, we can't be the best moms for our kids. So here's a crazy question that I know you doctors are probably going to roll your eyes at, but I just got to ask. Is it really important for us mamas to have a physical every single year? So this is a complicated question. So I encourage everybody to get in and really see their doctor, whether it's yearly, whether it's one to three years. But the reason why we advocate for physicals, number one is beyond the medical checkup, physicals are just good for building a relationship with your primary care doctor. It's also good for setting a baseline. You know, what are your blood pressures? Are you a pre-diabetic? Do you have risks for X, Y, and Z? Can I reverse that? And so above all reasons, it's important to have a physical because you really have an opportunity to talk and share with your physician. Now, in terms of, you know, the recommendations, Between the ages of 22 and 64, it really is recommended that women see their primary care physician about one to three years. Obviously, if you have health problems such as diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, you have some major health problem, you're going to need to see your doctor sooner. For some people who are struggling controlling their blood pressures, they may need to see their doctor every six months or so. But if you're generally very, very healthy, 
there's really no reason to see your doctor every one year. You could sort of push that over to every two years, every three years. But better believe if you're a smoker, if you have risk factors for certain conditions, you really need to get into your doctor's office. Now, this is just a physical. Corinne may have different recommendations for women specifically because some women, they tend to go see their OBGYN and may not see their primary care physician. And we would advocate that you see your primary care physician and your OBGYN. Corinne, can you chime in on that? Absolutely. It is very important for women to see the gynecologist every year. So for me, it it is important to let patients know that when they come see me as a gynecologist, I'm only taking care of them as a gynecologist. So I will make sure to address issues that are pertinent within the field of gynecology. Therefore, it is very much important that they continue to see their PCP alongside with me. What I recommend is that when a young woman starts to become sexually active, she needs to be connected with a gynecologist because that's when we start to talk about STD prevention. We address birth control contraception issues and we prepare them for what is to come with cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening, and so on and so forth. In my field, I ideally, I like to see women starting at age 21. However, as soon as a young woman is sexually active, she needs to be seen by me so that we can talk about those issues and we can dive into the recommendations that are specific to women in my field per their age group little, a little bit later on today. That's all really great information because I go to my doctor every year. And so right. I just thought every year I'm supposed to go see my doctor and get this stuff done. So I just <laughs> your, your primary care physician or your OBGYN? My primary care, I don't have an OBGYN anymore because I, I just have a, a primary care that I go to. Does she do your, your testing, your cervical cancer screening? Your primary care doctor does that? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I well, get, that works. Yeah, I get my, my pap smears with her. So, and that they started doing like every every like three years now they do that. Yeah, that's great actually, because a lot of primary care physicians have certification in women's health and can do that, but some don't. And so it gets a little bit dicey when you have to see two different people. But I, I like going to see an OBGYN because, you know, delivering my babies, we have that connection. We talk about women's issues, family planning. And so things, conversations that I may not have with my primary care physician, but you do what works. And if your primary care physician is comfortable with women's health issues, and that's just a plus for you. Wait, I have a question. That's, is it possible for our doctors to not have a women's health certification? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. It's a totally yeah. different field. <laughs> Yeah, it's a totally yeah. different field. Girl, that's news to me. Wait a minute. I, I, so, so, like, do we look, uh, do we ask? Is it an asterisk on the, the paper in our insurance? No, you won't know until you ask. And so, like, you know, I've had, I've had several different primary care physicians. I've had some who've done the certification, who did, did my pap smears, my, my breast exams, all of that. And so I didn't have to go see an OBGYN. Then you have, there's some family physicians who take care of, they deliver babies, they take care of, they do, they do it all. Ooh. And then you just have 
internists who just, they don't do women's health. And so they'll see you from your medical problems, but they'll refer you out to an OBGYN to do all your birth control, your your women's planning, your cervical cancer screening. And so the only way to really know is to have that conversation or call when you're calling your primary care. But when you're calling the, the facility, you should ask before you make an appointment if it's important to you. But I would like to add though, even though we do have some wonderful providers out there who have certification in women's health, when there is a concern, when there's a problem, you end up being referred to an OBGYN. So it works great when you are very healthy young woman and you do not encounter any complications when they do screen you for anything. But as soon as there's a problem, you're going to end up seeing a gynecologist. Hence the reason why it is very useful to have a gynecologist in your phone book because most likely you're going to end up needing them at some point. We all do. Oh, all women do. <laughs> well, this is another question that has come up is how long does it take to really recover from having a baby? I know because the news makes it seem like the day after you have your baby, you should back to a size two, <laughs> ready to skydive off, you know, Mount Everest or something. Yeah, the and back, is real. Right? Like, so can you give us real information How long does it really take for our bodies to completely recover? Well, it depends. And the reason why I say that is because you have to think about every patient as an individual, correct? So what are we considering returning to baseline? Are we talking about snapback with those abs like we see on Instagram? Are we talking about your mental health? Are we talking about your ability to return to sexual activity? Are we talking about menstrual cycles? What are we really talking about here? So once you define that, it helps you set your goals or have a conversation that makes sense to the patient. Most of the time when people come back to me after they've had a baby, the number one question that comes up is, when can I resume my regular activities? And it comes down to exercising for most of them. They're like, I just want to be able to get back out there. Well, if you've had a C-section, you want to make sure that you allow a minimum of six weeks, if not, if not more, before you resume activities like exercise, right? And when you dive back into exercise, you want to make sure that you add in increments because you're going to notice that your strength is going to be off. You're not going to be able to do the things that you used to do spontaneously before. So if it's the, within the context of exercise, Size, you're going to need at least six weeks. Now, if we're talking about intimacy. Yes, let's talk about intimacy. <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking about intimacy, again, a minimum of four to six weeks is required. Most of the time, when I see my patients four weeks out, some of them still have stitches healing from lacerations that they may have had during labor. So those patients, I tell them, you're probably going to need six to eight weeks to get to a point where you can comfortably have sex. So those are the two questions that come up consistently when a woman is asking me, when can I actually return to my regular activities or when can I have sex? Because their husband are looking at them with three eyes. Like, <laughs> so, that's what comes up. And yeah. is she really asking that question because she wants you to say, 
Oh, my doctor said two months, babe. Two months. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. You, you, you won't believe how many times they, they're so relieved when I tell them, oh, yeah, you need eight weeks, girl. And they're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. They're like, can you put that in writing? Yeah, oh, I need no, a pre- written prescription. Ladies, this question kind of hits home because for me, I just, you know, as you all know, I have a 16-month-old. And so when you talk about how long does it really re- take to recover, I I would say I'm 16 months postpartum and finally feeling myself, Mm -hmm. but it really... You know, it wasn't up until 12 months that I started to feel some resemblance of my old self. And really, in terms of physical healing, I'd say I felt back to normal from a physical perspective, maybe 12 weeks in terms of my mental health and just like how I felt about my body, you know, self-esteem, I'd say probably one year it took to recover. And so it really does differ for every woman, but definitely a relevant question. Yeah. Thank you for being honest about that, because I think our society always says like it's not a big deal like I feel like pregnancy is the one thing where you go through a serious medical situation and people think it's not a big deal but it's a big it deal is a when big the mommy deal cries. it is a big deal a huge deal your body is changing the snap back like oh look at me you know after six weeks I mean it's that's not how it is for everybody your body has gone through major transformation and women need to be more forgiving absolutely. towards themselves absolutely and give themselves time that leads me to my next question. Listen, is mommy brain a diagnosable thing? Like, can I get a card or a bracelet? Uh, <laughs> I need a life alert for the mommy brain. Oh, yeah, yeah. So mommy brain, I mean, I, I can tell you the scientific perspective that I have, but I'm curious to hear what Erica has to say before I spit out whatever I know. <laughs> because she's the mommy out of... So I will, I will say definitely during pregnancy, I mean, you just, you're forgetting things. You just, you're all over the place. And even postpartum, I mean, you're forgetting names, forgetting TV shows and, you know, reading when I was going through it, I'd say, yes, it is real. 100% reading the literature out there and seeing what it really says. It just, it almost kind of makes sense. Karen and I were talking about this being that you are so sleep deprived, like as a pregnant lady, as a mom, you are constantly sleeping deprived. And so how much of that memory loss is sleep deprivation? You know, what was interesting is that there are a few studies that actually explored the topic. And what they found was that when they looked at women's brain through an MRI, they were able to identify that toward the later stage of their pregnancy and into postpartum, they noticed changes of the brain that showed shrinkage of certain area of the brain. And they noticed that those changes were essentially present with women that were experiencing significant bonding experience with the baby. So the speculation was, as you have those changes happening in your brain, it's essentially the volume shrinkage is essentially there to compensate for other aspects of your brain, which will involve the emotional aspect of your brain. So unfortunately, it translates into some sort of changes in the way you function and the way you retain information. But the good thing of it is that those hormonal changes then allow you to better care for your infant. So that was the summary of it. So you create more space for your mother. Korea, we are sacrificing. 
sacrificing our brain for our babies. <laughs> and you know what was crazy is that they were able to reevaluate that two years later and they noticed that those changes could last up to two years. So it's a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. And wait, my baby know. is 16 and I still haven't read it. Wait, that that you that 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 memories about being a mother or childbirth and so that memory loss may actually be beneficial or evolutionary wow. I guess or you know you can just say that's God's way of helping us out yeah. to forget the bad things that we went through and <laughs> because <laughs> some of us we like, have bad memories exactly. when we were pregnant yeah. okay. <laughs> you will never do it again <laughs> you will never do it again but in all seriousness though (laughs) lord i can't do that pregnancy i went through (laughs) okay then on that oh my goodness on that same line okay mommies are tired right we don't get enough sleep we're worrying about our babies okay i need you to put like all your md power into this next question. <laughs> what do oh we do? God. Do we take something? Do we stand on our heads to rush blood to our heads? Like, uh, we need the silver bullet. This is what you went to medical school for. Write this question right oh, here. Help man, all I, the mommies out. Oh my God. <laughs> I wish it was that simple. I, I wish it was that simple. Listen, oh, you and I, on. Erica, will be like out there making a whole lot of money, okay? But it it doesn't, it's not as simple. Like the data is not a cut dry on this, you know. We do know the benefit of multivitamins, but there's not one thing that you can give to a woman to make herself, to make her feel better or less tired because the physiology of the fatigue behind being a new mom is just that you're tired. Your body needs to rest and that you can change that, you know. If you want to talk about a magic pill, a magical thing to do, one is getting adequate sleep. I know, I know what y'all thinking. You don't need. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're prescribing something like Tahiti. Uh, oh, yeah. no, okay, listen, doctor. I know. Tahitian army vacation. Can you write a script for it? I mean, I, sometimes, and you know what? In terms of vacation, sometimes you need to. Sometimes you just need to take a sabbatical. Just be like, I said, we need a yeah, vacation. I was heavy on the need, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. Like we, we, we. You need a vacation. And I think it comes down to mindfulness. You want to make sure that you create a healthy space around yourself and within yourself in order to achieve that state of well-being. And it comes with vacation. It comes with taking care of yourself. It comes with eating a healthy diet. It comes with exercising. It comes with meditation. I know I'm always talking about meditation, but it's so good. Like, All of those things, taking care of yourself. Yes, that's how you can address those issues. And that's free for the most part, besides the vacation. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to have any problems getting sick from vitamins because I'm never consistent. You're never (laughs) consistent. I'm I'm good for like three days. I'm like, ooh, I'm taking my vitamins. And then I don't look at them. Until you pop the gummy ones. If you've had the gummy vitamins, those ones, you just be popping them like candy. So don't get the Well, yeah, my son's like, how many can I have a day? I'm like, look at it, kid. It's a vitamin. It's not (laughs) 
Oh, and, and ladies, I'd like to add that, you know, some people find themselves tired because, you know, they're not eating well or getting a proper diet. And so for those people, multivitamins may actually be beneficial because you think about women who've just had a baby or even, you know, women in general, they, they are prone to iron deficiency anemia. I mean, we bleed every month and some of us bleed excessively. So some people may find themselves being anemic and may actually need iron. They may need iron in their multivitamins. Some people may be deficient from B vitamins because they're not eating eating enough B vitamin rich foods or vitamin D. They may not be drinking enough vitamin D rich milk or supplements. And so I think it really depends on yourself and how you're eating and taking care of yourself. And so should you take multivitamins and supplements? I would have a conversation with your doctor first, just to make sure you get to the bottom of why you're tired and then sleep more eat more, eat healthy, and exercise. And ask for help. And ask for help. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. So here's a question that we come across too, are like, what are some symptoms that we shouldn't ignore? When, when we send people home from the emergency department, we always give them a big list of what we say, return instructions. And that those return instructions are so important when the nurse is, you know, giving that discharge. And I tell them, you need to emphasize these things. And I talk to the patient as well. But I'll say in terms of this question, one of the biggest thing that women really need to worry about is if they are having excessive vaginal bleeding, okay? If they're saturating a pad every hour, whether it's from their menstrual cycle or whatever it is, excessive vaginal bleeding can be life-threatening because one, you can become so anemic that you can pass out, your heart can stop. I mean, anemia could lead to horrible things. And so excessive vaginal bleeding is one of them. We talk about chest pain, difficulty breathing. And so chest pain, difficulty breathing is major. There's blood clots, there's heart attacks. All of these things can be prevalent in a peripartum woman, a woman who just had baby, or even if you're getting to the point where you're menopausal, all these things, chest pain, transit breath are all worrisome in terms of cardiac conditions or blood clots in your lungs. And so those are all things that are not normal. And so if you're experiencing that, you should definitely not ignore it and seek out attention. And other little things, you know, we think about is sudden abdominal pain or headaches, leg swelling. I mean, it's this is such a loaded question and it, it's just, it's really getting to know your body and knowing what is not normal. But chest pain, difficulty breathing, you absolutely should seek out attention if you're experiencing that. Also, from your gynecologist, if you've never had an orgasm, you should seek attention. <laughs> yes. If you well, have, well, say that again for the people in the back. Say it again for the people in the back. If you've never had an orgasm, you should seek medical attention. Yeah. And if you have foul vaginal discharge, you should seek medical attention. But that won't kill you. But it can kill your intimacy. <laughs> but it's girl, women yes. need to hear that. Women need to hear that. Kind it of. is true, though. Those conversations, I have them all the time. And people don't act it outside of my office. So I'm putting it out there. You're not alone. Just come talk to me. Oh, yes. Nice. Yes, absolutely. That's awesome. Now, what about, like, now that we're talking about our body parts, what about our breasts, right? At what age should we get a mammogram? I feel like... There's different news stories about what age and whether we should and all that. What's the down low on the up top? <laughs> really? <laughs> That's how we're going to do it. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about mammograms, right? Yes, yes. ma'am. For mm -hmm. mammograms, what we, we recommend is that you start 
getting screening at age 40 if you don't have any significant family history. Okay. Now, if you do have significant family history, and that means if you have a sister who has had breast cancer or your mother who has had breast cancer at a young age, you want to consider getting screening earlier. And those, the specifics of those, you should speak to your doctor. But age 40 is what we recommend. Now, when you look at different school of thoughts out there, there could be variations. But in general, most of us agree that age 40 is the way to go. Okay, that makes That's sense. That's when I started having mine. They, they are not very pleasant. Yeah, at 40 years old, I started having them. And it's so funny because recently my sister said, I'm going, she called me. She said, I just got a quick question. I'm going to get a mammogram. What do I need to expect? So I tried not Ouch. to scare her. <laughs> but I said, just be, yeah, just be prepared is not going to be the most pleasant thing ever. Just be prepared. You'll be okay. You think you won't be, but you will be. <laughs> I remember the first time I had one, I was like, is it really necessary to squeeze that thing that tight? Like, am I going to have any left? I'm like, come on now. But yes, it is definitely an experience I don't look forward to, but I, I happily get it done because I would, I, w I would rather know sooner rather than definitely, later if there's a, a problem. So it's one of those things like you don't look forward to it. It's like a pap smear. You don't look forward to it. You just know it's got to be done. Right. <laughs> I think they should give you a glass of wine with both. <laughs> Listen, my husband has to do a whole lot of work to touch up all up on me. I think the doctor should have to too. <laughs> I, I have a question about this, Corinne. How about breast exams? Because you know we emphasize all these mammograms, but how about breast exams? Should doctors be, you know, checking? Well, we actually um, are trying to move away from self breast exam and advocate, uh, like basically encouraging breast awareness. So whenever a patient comes to us, we do the breast exam. We now change that most recently to age 25 and up. When a patient comes to me, I ask her if she's aware of any changes in her breast. Then I proceed with the breast exam, but I don't expect her to go home and learn how to perform a breast exam on herself, if that makes sense. Yes. That makes great sense because I don't know how many times they have like given me the instruction on what to do. And I literally told a doctor one time, I said, listen, everything feels like a lump to me, right? <laughs> then you you got me like on WebMD. <laughs> What's going well, on? I got the first breast exam in, in biology in or not elementary school, in high school. Oh. And it, I was freaking out. And like, I literally thought I felt a lump. I was crying. I'm like, mom, I'm going to die. And I went to the doctor and I was like, oh baby, that's just your milk ducts coming in. I'm like, that is milk ducts yeah. in the biology class right and my doctor told me that you're i'm very fibrous oh. so it's going to be really difficult to you to distinguish but once you get to know your breasts i was like look at man that's your job uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you got the degree okay corinne so i have a question we're supposed to be observing noticeable changes so just like looking at ourselves in the mirror with our bras on like, how do we observe the change? So awareness is a combination of observation, of palpation, of things that you do in the shower when you, you, you're washing over and you notice a change that wasn't there two days before. So it's, it's okay. that, that's what we mean by awareness. It's your partner telling you, hey, babe, that's something that is weird. What is that? Yes, that, that's awareness, you know. So you're able to then come back and be like, hey, doc, this is this is what I noted. And I don't think it was there two weeks ago. So can we look into that? 
Whereas before we used to teach patients how to do those exams at home and it will bring a lot of anxiety to patients because they're not trained for that, you know? So what are some additional screenings that we should be asking for at like each age level, like say like, you know, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, what, what are some of the screenings we should be asking our doctors to perform? So Corinne touched on the pap smears. If you can repeat that, Corinne, just so we hear that again in the cervical cancer. So cervical cancer screening should be started at age 21. And the frequency is between age 21 to age 30. It should be obtained every three, it should be performed every three years. And it's done with pap smears, which is the test that we use to do cervical cancer screening. And after age 30, all the way to age 65, it's performed every five years. And this is only if you've had a normal history. Obviously, there will be variation depending on the results of the pap smear. That will cover cervical cancer screening. Now, if we we want to ex- expand that to colon cancer screening, we recommend the use of colonoscopies for colon cancer screening general population, the recommendation is to start at age 50, but for African-American, it should be started at age 45. Oh, oh wait no, a wait minute. A wait, no, I am 45. We wait. are not going there right now. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. So, so ladies, ladies, this is very important because colon cancer is prevalent in our community. And so even though the, the recommendations say 50 for the, the, the public, for African-Americans, you should be talking to your doctor at the age of 45 because it is so prevalent and we have people are being diagnosed at young ages. And, you know, not only should you be getting a colonoscopy, but you should know your family history. You know, I always talk about this. I had, my mom was diagnosed at 50 at her first colonoscopy. She was diagnosed with colon cancer. And so, you know, if she maybe had had been screened earlier, maybe they could have clipped a polyp earlier. And so for me, that means that I actually have to be screened at age 40. So if you have a relative who had colon cancer, the youngest age they were diagnosed, you subtract 10 years and that's when you should be getting a colonoscopy. So if your mom had colon cancer at 45, you should be getting a colonoscopy at 35 years old. It's crazy, but it's prevalent and I see it. And so I would say, ladies, if you're pushing 45, you need to go get your colonoscopy. Oh Oh my goodness. goodness. And it comes down to talking. It comes down to talking to each other because a lot of people don't know their family history and there's sometimes a taboo um, feeling about asking those questions to your mom, your dad. But in these scenarios, it's very important to know your family history because it can save your life. I have never, Corinne, I I don't know why. I I don't know why. I thought I I have five more years. I thought I was 50 or 60. I know. (sighs) Oh my nice. goodness, ladies! If nothing, I'd else- rather get five mammograms in a year. Bro, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you going to no actual colonoscopies? Better they sedate you. They uh, they sedate you. A mammogram, you're awake and they're smushing. So I want to be knocked out completely. Yeah, yeah you don't feel anything. You're sleeping. They give you okay. a sedative and you'll never remember. You'll just wake up and you're like, what happened? Oh, Ruthie, I'm going to get Ruthie. <laughs> Not just Ruthie and you for your colonoscopy, girl. That's hilarious. All right. Anything else? So we got our mammograms, our passionaries, our colonoscopy, which is a revelation to us. Anything else we should be making sure we're asking? 
Oh yeah, cholesterol. Cholesterol screening after age forty, they should be they should be checking your lipids, and after age forty, every five years. And if you are at risk of diabetes or there's been something abnormal with your blood your blood sugars in the past, or you've had gestational diabetes, uh, you're obese, or have other risk factors, you should be getting a hemoglobin A1C, which is just basically looking at your average blood sugars and seeing if you are pre-diabetic or a diabetic. And so your doctor should be checking that. And I think that's about it. Oh, another thing is your blood pressure. So here's the thing. We always say this, we put it on our podcast, we put it on a page, but blood pressure is a silent killer. High blood pressure is a silent killer. And many women walk around and don't even know that they have high blood pressure. And so you don't know until you check. So you should be getting your blood pressure checked, whether it's at your primary care doctor's office, whether it's at your OBGYN office, wherever you can check it, you need to check it. And if you are doctor averse and you don't want to go see a doctor, you better be going to CVS, you know, Rite Aid, whatever to check your blood pressure. It is super important. And it can sneak up on you because I've always had perfect uh, blood pressure. Even when I was pregnant, I never had high blood pressure. And then went to the doctor one day and they must have taken my blood pressure two or three times. And she said, you have high blood pressure. And I was thinking, there's no way I've never had high blood pressure. And then it, she says, no, it's high. And I had to go on medication and then they had to change the medication. But I have since been um, really got serious about my health in August. And so I've been working out and eating right. And I've lost about 20 pounds and I've been monitoring my blood pressure. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that's that. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I did not oh, want to have awesome. to be on blood pressure medicine forever. I just thought, no, I've got to get this under control. So now we've got blood pressure screening. We've got, we got to get smears, our, our colonoscopy. Oh, I was, yeah, I was trying to get that one last. No, you yeah. got to do that colonoscopy. One. Those are like, the, are those the four major screen? We've got the four major ones. We've got blood pressure, pap smear, mammograms, and colonoscopies. Are those the four major screenings we need to be concerned about? Yes. And I just want to add after age 65, you want to make sure that you check your bone health and your gynecologist or your primary care doctor can talk to you about it. There is a scan that can be done. That's a DEXA scan and it checks for your bone mineral density. And it's important because that age group can be very sensitive to fractures and that can tremendously impact their life. As a result of a fracture, they can have a different, they can have a very, very poor outcome in their quality of life. So we do recommend screening after age 65. Now, what about those of us, you know, in our <clears throat> mature ages and we're starting to experience, you know, the perimenopausal night sweat situations? What can we do to either get rid of them or lessen them? And what the heck is perimenopause? Like, why do we need a prefix on the menopause? Well, and I was told I was premenopausal. So what is premenopausal? What's perimenopausal? What are all the menopausal? I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's the same thing. It's just that we use different words to say the same thing. It's the period of time before you enter menopause where you start to have a decline in your hormones and you can have symptoms associated with that, such as night sweats, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, moodiness, anxiety, insomnia. You know, I can keep going. So... 
those are essentially as a result of those hormonal fluctuation that we all going to experience as we get closer and closer to menopause. So that bracket of time is the perimenopausal or premenopausal period. Funny because I just had somebody reach out to me and she said, what is this perimenopause? She's going through all these issues. She had a partial hysterectomy. So she still has, I believe she still has her ovaries, but everything else is gone. And she's experiencing a lot of just different symptoms. And she's, she's wondering what can she do to help lessen those symptoms? What can she, is there anything she can take? I know people talk about like becoming plant-based or different, like matcha or maca or something, maca root, something like that, you know? Yes. So typically when I have a patient who comes in and asks me the same question that young lady asks, the first thing that I want to assess is how, what her lifestyle is like, because that's something that you can change. And it comes down to healthy lifestyle, which include diet, exercise, but also smoking, alcohol. So all the fun stuff. (laughs) 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 But in all seriousness, if you can adjust and make those changes in your life, you can definitely see how it can benefit you in that phase when you're transitioning into menopause. And then you can take it a step further if you feel that those changes are not giving you the relief you're looking for, and you can look into herbal supplementation. We've all heard about black cohosh, you know, people use that and report some symptomatic relief. We know that primrose oil has been used as well. So there are a few herbs out there that are well known to be helpful. And then after that, you can dive into the use of some antidepressant like Paxil, which is a medication that has been shown to be helpful with hot flashes, night sweats, and also will tap into the mood component of the perimenopausal period. And after that, you dive into hormonal replacement therapy. So you can go from lifestyle modifications to natural remedies, to non-hormonal option, and then finally close with hormonal replacement therapy. And can you talk about the risks though with hormonal therapy? Because I, I do think, you know, leaving that towards the end of the spectrum, I think is because of the risks that are associated with Yes, absolutely. So hormonal replacement therapy can be very useful with the right patient. And defining the right patient has to do with the risk factors of that patient. In general, to summarize it and make it easy for the listener, the hormonal replacement therapy essentially involves the use of estrogen and or progesterone to manage symptoms of hot flashes, night sweats, and changes of your bones. When it comes to choosing the right patient, you have to make sure you identify a patient that does not have an increased risk for breast cancer, because we do know that the data surrounding hormonal replacement therapy showed that it can increase your risk of breast cancer. Oh, man. Yes, it's very low, but it is not zero. So it's important to recognize that mm-hmm. in when you talk to a patient and identify those patients that could be at risk for breast cancer. Other thing that was noted when they did the studies was that there's an increased risk of blood clots, strokes, heart attacks. So with that being said, 
again, it's important to recognize that. So if you have a patient who has already has a history of a stroke, you, she might not be the best patient for hormonal replacement therapy. If you have a patient who reports that she's, her doctor told her, listen, your bone mineral density is decreasing, and she also has signs of perimenopause or menopause with hot flashes and ice sweats. That's a good candidate if she doesn't have any surrounding risk factors because you can kill two birds with one stone. So that's how you have to think about it. So it's important to have a, a, a visit with your, talk, with your doctor to figure out if you're a good patient for that. Now, the, for, the last thing I forgot to mention earlier is vaginal dryness, which now we have hormonal replacement therapy that targets that because we now know that women can experience pain with intercourse as it relates to vaginal dryness and the vaginal dryness is related to the lack of estrogen that they experience in their menopausal years. So we now have medications toward that. So that's also something that can be discussed with your doctor. Well, I know those night sweats are no joke. It happens to me probably about three, four nights a month and I wake up <laughs> I was like, did I go to the gym while I was sleeping? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> my, only, my only hope is that I maybe burned some extra calories while I was sleeping. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. oh, my God. It's bad because, like, literally, like, my shirt will be a little wet. And I'm just like, what is going on? This is It's terrible. Crazy. And it can impact your quality of life significantly. And, and people around you suffer, too, with you because you're moody and you know, it's not easy. Oh yeah, I suffered when my mom went through it, girl. <laughs> I, I I remember that time. So, ladies, if you just had one habit that you wished all your patients would implement in their lives, what would you each prescribe to every patient? Mm, wow. So, you know, when 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 I was thinking about this, I was thinking about you know, habit, whether lifestyle, whether um, behavioral. And I say, I think for me as an emergency room physician, I would say the habit that I would like my patients to have is to really getting in the habit of knowing their medical history, mm -hmm. um, knowing their, what medications they take, what ailments they suffered with, what allergies they have, their family history. All this is so important when I have patients come into the emergency department that sometimes it's very frustrating when um, people don't know. They don't know why they're taking their medications. They don't know why things were prescribed. And so for me, I would say get in the habit of knowing what conditions you're diagnosed with, what medications you're taking, what family history you have. All of that is important. And I, I'll leave the behavioral things to Corinne because this when I'm reading this question, this is what I was thinking about. I, I had the same thoughts, but for me, if I had one thing I could share with my patients, besides what you just mentioned, which is absolutely pertinent, I think that I will tell my patients to get into a habit of learning to just love themselves, meaning spend the time to nurture your body and your mind. Take care of yourself because it translates into so many other areas of your health. And it takes a moment to pause and practice meditation and practice self-care and practice self-love. And the benefit will run for mm -hmm. a lifetime, a lifetime. And we talk about, we, we have so many topics regarding how 
exercise, diet, taking care of yourself can impact your health, hypertension, cancer, and all of that. The common denominator is self-care, you know? So mm. that's what I will say. Preach, girl. You gotta love yourself. Love your body. Mm-hmm. That is so true. That was been that's been our theme this month is self-love and self-care. I think that was a perfect way to like sum it up because if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of your family. Totally. Ladies, we appreciate your time so very much. UI Mamas, you have got to go and download Hey Doc, let's chat. I have learned so many things from each and every one of their podcasts. And if you ever just wanted to be a fly on the wall, listening to doctors chat about health issues, (laughs) this is the podcast for you. It will inform you. It will, you know, these ladies are hilarious and just love their (laughs) jobs. And I think having empathetic, empowering female doctors of color is something we should just all support. But more importantly, you'll just have a good time, ladies. So please check out Hey Doc, Let's Chat. Thank you for having us, ladies. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if this episode blessed you in any way, please pick three moms that you know and share this episode with them. We'd love to hear from you and continue the conversation on Instagram at you underscore I underscore M-A-M-A-S. On Facebook at Unapologetically Imperfect. On Twitter at you underscore I underscore Mamas. On YouTube at Unapologetically Imperfect. And on our website at www.unapologeticallyimperfect.net. Have a blessed day, UI Mamas. And remember, being the best mom is not about being perfect. It's about being perfectly you.